morning, good morning. I hope you are doing well. If today is day number one for you, my name is Dean. I'm the lead pastor here, and we are um, blessed, thrilled to have you uh, with us here today. If you're watching online, thanks for checking in with us uh, as well this morning as we are in week number seven of a series called New, where we are moving through the revelation of God that was given uh, to the Apostle John, um, the last of the book, uh, the last book of uh, the scriptures. And as we are looking um, at that, right, it is bringing us some challenges. Now you remember, we hit pause last week on the series, so we're jumping back a couple of weeks just to kind of recap uh, where we've been. Um, the revelation written by John was written to seven churches um, in Asia, well not just the churches, um, the you remember the first chapter, first week we talked about it, said it was written to the churches and to the pastors of the churches who were referred to as angels, which I love very much. Um, you're not referring to me as that, but I would appreciate it more and more uh, and more. And this book was written to these people who, uh, the original hearers, mainly who were um, Hebrews, um, who were living in these seven churches or seven cities of Asia Minor, uh, and the letter went out to them. They were struggling with two main issues. Number one was spiritual apathy. Uh, there was a sense of prosperity in a lot of these cities. Um, so some people were just kind of meh about their relationship with God. They were just kind of like, uh, they kind of just took it, for, took it for granted. The other group of people that the letter was written to was a, a, a different group in some of these cities. They were undergoing uh, horrific persecution by the Roman Empire. Some of them were going through very terrible and very uh, difficult things. So what God does in giving John the revelation is to help them understand hope because of what will be all things being made new um, out into the future. I've got a friend who says that his wife reads books like a crazy person because she will um, pick up a book and the first thing she'll do is turn to the last chapter. And she reads the last chapter. And if she likes the way the story ends, then she goes back and starts reading from the beginning of the book and reads it all the way through, which is a terrible way to read a book, but it's a fantastic way to read the Bible, right? Because what God does is he kind of plucks John up out of the first century, out of his chapter, the early chapters of Christianity, and he takes him all the way and he drops him in the last chapter, in the final chapter of world history. And John gets to see what is coming in the restoration of all things and describe it to us so that in John's chapter and in our chapter, we can reach forward and grab that, bring that into today, which ought to give us hope. That's why we've said every week that revelation is more about present hope, present day hope that you and I need than it is about a future calendar. That it was written to comfort us and to confront us not to confuse us and get us only caught up in speculative uh, prophecies based on symbols. And, you know, we've talked through the symbols. I understand there's a lot of them, right, in the Revelation um, to figure out. Um, I, my wife, Angie, and I were talking with some friends a couple of weeks ago, and they, um, they mentioned to us or asked us about how long LifePoint um, has, has been around. And they've been uh, part of our church since our church was uh, smaller in the early days. Um, we've moved locations and all of, all of that kind of stuff. And so what Angie meant to say uh, was that she was one of the OGs, right? One of the originals um, at LifePoint. But you know, Angie and I aren't great with like contemporary trendy language. And so what came out was she said, well, you know, I am the goat of LifePoint. 
And I cannot tell you how much mileage I have gotten out of that over the past couple of weeks. Whenever anything comes up in our relationship, I'm like, well, you're the GOAT. I mean, come on, you should know, right? how to do this. And I was just thinking about that. So think about, let's say somebody wrote that down, right? And 50 years from now or 75 years from now, what they read was the goat of life point was married to the angel of the church, right? Who sang the songs and praises of the, like, you'd have to just like, what is, what in the world does that mean? But that's kind of what we are doing um, as we go through, uh, as we read through uh, the revelation. Now, if you think about the reason that the revelation, the, the reason this is so, um, it's appropriate, it's practical for us, is that many of us here today fall into one of two camps. Some of us here today are dealing with spiritual apathy. When it comes to your relationship with God, you're just kind of, eh. Things aren't great. Things aren't terrible. We live in a place where there's enough prosperity that you can just kind of muddle your way through and you just kind of end up taking God for granted. We all do that at times. There's some of you who are here in the room today who are going through incredibly difficult things. And so Revelation is also, for, it's incredibly practical and relevant for wherever it is with. And you're just thinking about our region um, comparatively to the, rest, to the rest of the world, to the globe. It's not just a, you know, not always happy, happy time for everybody. Um, it's terrible time in some place. You think about the Darfur region of Sudan. Still today, ethnic cleansing is going on in that region and children by the hundreds experience genocide in tribal warfare related to religious beliefs and things like that that go on there. It's, it's very difficult, it's, it's tragic in nature. And there's this part of the world that sometimes we're a little bit insulated from, but we start to feel the pressure, I think, a little more and more, right? And it's the reason that, it's the reason that we have 911, it's the reason that we have locks on our doors, right? It's, it's the reason that we have uh, courts and jail and police officers. It's this battle that we see and that we feel between, um, between good and evil that are both at work in the world. And it doesn't matter whether you're here today and you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, right? Believers and unbelievers alike. We all understand the problem that we have with sin and evil in the world. The bigger issue is that nobody knows what to do about it. Nobody knows how to change it. And Revelation chapter 16, where we're gonna be today, is the point in the Bible where God says, I'm gonna do something about it in the battle of Armageddon. So Revelation chapter 16, turn over there and we, will, uh, and we will jump in. Verse one, then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath or the judgment or the justice um, of God. So throughout this movement, right in Revelation, we've talked about the seven seals, and then we talked about the seven trumpets, and here we go now with the seven bowls, all of them relating to the justice of God, which I've said to you, and I'll say to you again, we all would welcome things to be, to be set right. The struggle for you and me a lot of times is that we see pictures, we, um, we see video and media of injustice that occurs. 
And because there are not immediate consequences, we tend to think, well, there's not going to be any consequences. But what the writer says here, what John says to us, is that this justice of God, the judgment of God, it's being stored up in these bowls. Matter of fact, it seems like one bowl's not enough. There are seven of them. And that they are being filled up. And the patient justice, uh, just because it's not happening and just because you and I don't see it doesn't mean that it won't happen. I don't know if your parents ever said this to you uh, whenever you were a kid, but every now and then, you know, you're acting up as a kid and you're, uh, me, my mom, I'm headed up to here, right? Right, right, right up to the, now down to here. If she only had it up to here, I'm good, right? But I've had it up to here with you. And this is the moment in scripture. Revelation chapter 16 is the moment where God says the bowls are full. I've had it up to here. The measure of God's patient justice begins to be poured out. So look at verse two, next verse. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped uh, his image. Uh, so verse two is a reminder of this mark of the beast. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. If you want to go back two weeks um, and get a more full uh, explanation uh, of that, you can. But do you remember when we talked about that, there were two spots, two places where um, this, this mark uh, of, this, of, of the beast was going to be held. You remember where those two are? One was on the forehead, right? And one was on the hand or on, or on the wrist. Now, one of the things that you have to remember, these original hearers, right, they're Hebrew. So um, some scholars, I tend to agree, say there's, there's over a hundred references in the Revelation to the Old Testament. So when they would have heard this, what would they, what would they have thought? And uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, right, this same idea, this same thing comes up in Exodus chapter 13 and verse 9. It says this, and God said, and it shall be assigned to you on your hand or on your wrist and a memorial between your eyes or on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be, um, may be in your mouth. To the original uh, hearers and listeners, they would have thought, oh yeah, we know that. Back in the Old Testament, coming out of the Passover, when God is establishing his relationship with people, they, they, God wanted his law, his covenant to be in their minds, in their hearts. So what he did was that they developed these things called phylacteries, right? These little boxes of scripture that they would tie around. They could put it on their forehead or they could put it on their wrist or on their hand because God wanted them to be reminded always of his covenant love, his law. So if you think about it this way, your forehead represents your mind or your thoughts, right? And your hand represents your behaviors or your activities. So what we learn, what they would have, I think what the original hearers would have thought is that this, this beast, this movement of evil in the world is the undoing or a reversal of what God was calling people to all the way back as far back in the old Testament as the Exodus. Why is that important? Because you and I, we reveal what we believe about our relationship with God by our thoughts and our actions by our minds and our behaviors. Now, what we tend to do as human beings is we try and reverse engineer that, right? 
We try and say, well, do this in your behaviors, follow this law, this rule, this law, this, right? Do this, 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 and this, and think this, 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 and that'll change you from the outside in. But what God says, no, is that you're revealing your thoughts, typically by what we say, and typically in the middle of a crisis, we're revealing our relationship with him by what's in our minds and what are our activities and our behaviors. So here's where I think this benefits us. If I were to ask you, think about this, think about yesterday. Think about this past week. If someone judged your relationship with God by the things you've thought and by the ways that you've acted, what would it reveal about your relationship with God or maybe the lack of a relationship with God? Because our thoughts and our activities become those, they become those revealers, right? Now, what happens in this Armageddon struggle is that continues to work its way out. Look at, um, look at verse three. And the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died um, that, was in, uh, that was in the sea. So we already saw in verse two, right? There were these, uh, uh, there were these sores or maybe boils that were related um, to those who took the image of the mark of the beast. And then here we see um, that the water system uh, in John's vision becomes red like blood. Now think about it for just a minute. If you've read scripture, read the Old Testament, where have you heard that before? Painful sores like boils and water being turned to blood. Where have you heard that? There you go, thank you. The 10 plagues of Moses, right? All the way back in the Exodus. And if you read the rest of chapter 16 in Revelation, what you're gonna see is those 10 plagues of, of uh, Moses or the plagues against Pharaoh um, in the Old Testament, in the Exodus, are almost an exact form, a blueprint for this battle. So the original hearers, when they read this, they would have read it and gone, oh yeah, we've heard that, we know that, we know that. So it becomes a pattern and you realize that all the way back, as far back as the Exodus, when God was just forming his people, he already had in mind the restoration of all things. And so if you, um, if you had the time to go and study, and I encourage you to do it, uh, we don't have the time today, but if you went back and studied, what you would see is that every one of the 10 plagues in Egypt was an assault on an Egyptian deity, on a different Egyptian God. Like I said, we don't have time to study all of it today, but I do, I do wanna point out two of them uh, to you. Now there's gonna be, look, there's gonna be just a little bit of history here. So focus, hang with me for about three or four minutes and I'll do my best to, to hope us bring us to a point and make sense. Some of your eyes are gonna roll back in your, roll back in your head here, right? Two gods that the plagues were an initial assault on. One of them um, was the Egyptian god, Amun-Ra, Pharaoh was worshiped as Amun-Ra. Here you see a, a depiction uh, of that. And it was the God of the sun, right? So they understood the, the importance of the sun to crops, to heat, all of, those, uh, all of those kinds of things. And that's how Pharaoh was worshiped um, as Amun-Ra. But maybe as interesting uh, to me is that Pharaoh's firstborn, the one who was gonna take over after, um, after he was gone, was worshiped as the Egyptian god Khonsu, or the god of the moon, right? So you, here's a depiction, the MC's got a, got a moon up there, and I don't know which, 
don't know what you'd like to be if you were an Egyptian god, but walking around with a moon on your head, right? Not the most interesting, kind of, but that's how they worshipped him. And one of the interesting things about Egyptian history is that um, the reason they worshipped God's, uh, that second god so powerfully, Khonsu, is because Egyptians believed that your good deeds versus your bad deeds were judged every night at midnight. So every night at midnight, when the moon was up, Khonsu was out judging your good deeds versus, um, versus your bad deeds, all right? So now, hold on to that, and quickly, I want to run through now, I want to run through the plagues with you. The first one, right, if you remember, was the plague against the Nile. It's the one we just kind of read about, the reference to that here in the Revelation. The Nile was turned to blood. Why do you think that God started there with that plague? Because, remember, at the beginning of the Exodus, Pharaoh, he was very worried about the population growth of the people of Israel. I mean, they'd been enslaved for 400 years. But he was very concerned about their population growth, that maybe the Hebrews would overthrow the Egyptians. So he forced the midwives to take all of the male-born children and throw them into the Nile. That would have been horrific. We tend to read through the scriptures, and it's just hard to correlate at times. So think about it from this perspective. Some historians say that when uh, the Hebrews left Egypt on the Exodus, that there were about two million, um, about two million Hebrews went with Moses um, out of Egypt. So in Metro Columbus today, there's about 2.2, 2.3 million people, give or take, a few in, in, in Metro. And every year in Columbus Metro, give or take, uh, there's about 24,000 live births in Columbus uh, Metro. So let's say half of those, right, would be male children. So that's 12,000 male children born every year in Columbus Metro. Now, could you imagine a world where we took 12,000 male children and just tossed them in the Scioto River every year? It would have been a horrific tragedy. And so when it comes to the 10 plagues, this is, this is the, the first perspective really that you see of God working with his people where he comes to Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, there'll be justice for that. You, you're not going to get away with that, right? And, and even in that, God is so kind. He gives Pharaoh 10 opportunities to turn um, and to repent. But that's why I think that's the first plague. That's where he starts. So let me go through. The, the plagues come in pairs. As I said, they're an assault um, on the gods. Those, the first pair um, is the pair, the, the, the Nile, as I mentioned, and the frogs uh, that come out of the water. The second pair um, is against the land, right? That's the dust becoming uh, lice, and then the flies cover the land. And then the next ones, um, they're on the, uh, on the land creatures. So that was against the livestock and then the boils or the sores that we already talked about um, that, are on, uh, that are on the humans. The next uh, pair came against the vegetation. You had the hail, uh, killed the standing vegetation. Then the locusts came and they ate up all of the smaller vegetation. And then the last two of the plagues were against the sun and the moon. And again, that makes sense, right? If Pharaoh is worshiped as the sun, so the plague of darkness, number nine, God just turns Pharaoh out. He just turns the light off and humiliates the God of the sun. But when the lights come back on, it's so interesting to me that the last of the plagues is against the moon. And you say, what do you, what do you mean against 
against the moon. Well, the last one, right? We know the introduction there in the last one is the introduction of the Passover, where God establishes that every, uh, that every family that would, bring in, um, that would bring in a lamb and sacrifice it and put the blood on the doorpost, whether you were um, Hebrew or Egyptian, right? Would experience that Passover, um, that Passover miracle. So here's how God establishes it in Exodus chapter 12. He says this, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of Israel shall kill or sacrifice their lambs at twilight. So God bases the Passover on the lunar cycle. On the 10th day of the month, they were to go, they were to get the lamb, they bring it into their home, they keep the lamb for four days. On the fourth day, they make the sacrifice at twilight, so right about dusk, then they take the blood, they put the blood right on their, on their doorposts, right, as a signal or a sign, because at midnight, on that night is the Passover. Now, what's interesting about that, when is, when is the moon the weakest? during the month. Think about the lunar cycle. The first, right? And the 30th, 31st, whatever day, you know, month it is. Like the moon's just a sliver. But when is the moon at full strength? The 15th of the month, right? So I want you to think about that. At the moment where the Egyptian people thought that their powerful God, Kansu, was judging the deeds of the people, the good deeds versus the bad deeds, would have been at midnight on the 15th when it was at full strength. It was at that moment where God introduces the Passover. It's at that moment where God says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, I told you there will be justice for this. You've enslaved my people for 400 years. You've oppressed them. I said to you, there will be justice for this. And you and I, as we look at the world today, we would say there should be justice for all of the murdered children in Darfur. That is, that is right. And in that we would welcome, we would welcome the judgment and the justice of God, right? To come and restore and to set all things right, to make all things new in the way that they ought to be. And it says that the people of Israel, when they left, they sang and they danced to the song of the lamb, the slain lamb, the same slain lamb in Revelation, the hero, right, of the book, who initially conquers his enemies by dying for them on the cross, but eventually is gonna conquer his enemies eternally by the future establishment of his eternal kingdom. And so for those of us who are here today, um, who are believers, our tendency is to read and think about the justice of God, right? And we think, well, you know what? That's for people who are not believers, who are outside of faith. It's a reminder to them to step into a relationship with God. And that is true. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is the kind reminder of God, the patient reminder of God to you, that you don't have to stand in this, um, this work, this performance of your good deeds versus your bad deeds. You don't have to try and be good because Jesus has been good for you not in your performance, in his performance for you on the cross. He died, paid for your sins and my sins, right? Was miraculously resurrected on the third day to give you hope, to give me hope that we could have new life. You can be welcomed into that, but it's not just for people who aren't yet believers. 
It's for those of us who are believers. And you say, how's it? How's that for me? How does that, how does that help me? How does that, how does that encourage me? In places like in the New Testament, like Romans chapter, uh, like Romans chapter 12, um, that says this, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, you're going to say to me, Dean, I can't do that. And you know what? I can't do that either. For people who offend us, hurt us, wound us, one of the most difficult things, it's impossible for us to not invite um, revenge and anger and bitterness on our own. But that's why sticking to God's word is so important. That's why reading through the New Testament is so important. For I am crucified with Christ, yet no longer I live, but what? But Christ lives through me. So I can't do that. I can't live a life where I give up bitterness, I don't seek revenge, and I put people over into God's hands because he's the one, the scriptures say, the God who judges righteously. I can't do that, but God can do that through me. So that's why it's important to keep God's covenant in my mind. It's important to keep God's covenant on my hands and God's word where I can see it so that I can be changed and transformed to become the kind of person that God wants me to be. Because the reality is I'm not qualified and neither are you. I'm not qualified to judge and you're not qualified to judge because none of us is perfect. I'm not qualified. I want you to say that with me on three, one, two, three. I'm not qualified. I think some of you think you're qualified. Let's say that again. Ready on three. One, two, three. I'm not qualified. I'm not qualified to judge, but you know what I am? I am justified because of Jesus' work on the cross for me, because I don't stand in my own works. I stand in the context of his works and what he's done. For I'm not qualified. I'm not qualified to judge, but I am justified to freedom, right? In this, what you see is that you and I get our own little um, mini spiritual exodus. You and I are allowed to walk in freedom because of the future judgment and the future justice of God that's out there into the future. You and I can entrust the people who've hurt us, who've wounded us, the people, I don't know, I don't know how to deal with problems over in Darfur, in the Sudan. I couldn't work that out. I'm not there, I didn't see it. I don't know what happened, but you know what God does? God sees everything, and these bowls of his wrath are just filling up. And he is the one who will righteously judge the nations. And so that gives me freedom. It gives me freedom to, to serve, to love, to give with no strings attached. Because I'm not qualified, but I don't have to be. But what I have been is I have been justified. I have been justified in my own exodus to my own free walk in the context of my relationship uh, with him. So that means you and I, you think about the core values of our church, you see them up there in the lobby, right? One of those is personal ministry. Personal ministry means that we are servants. You and I are free. We are free to serve. I showed you this slide uh, last week about all the needs that we have to serve um, here at LifePoint. You know, we just sent a group of people down to launch our Worthington campus. And listen, if you're a believer and you're not serving, you're not investing, it is not shocking to me that you may be suffering from spiritual apathy. That it may just be kind of, uh, to you. 
Because serving is one way that you grow. And as you invest in the lives of other people, as you give to things other than yourself, what happens is you become spiritually um, invested in those things and you want better. You want God's blessing and God's kingdom to come to bear in other ways. You know, um, last week, if you were here, some of you weren't, but those of you who were here, you know, we did baptisms uh, last week. And check this, across all six of our campuses last week, we baptized 121 people uh, last Sunday. Incredible what God did. But I'll say this, more important than the number are the stories. Just incredible stories of what God and his activity, what he's doing in the lives of people. I'm gonna show you pictures of just one of those stories. One of the young ladies that got baptized um, this past week was Mia. Um, and Mia, and that's her mom and dad, Ben uh, and Sansan. I believe Mia's 11 uh, years old. It was great to see her take that step uh, last week. But what's interesting is in texting with um, Sansan and Ben, her parents, they sent us this picture. And this is the picture of their child dedication 11 years ago in our other building over at 771, one of the first child dedications, if not the first child dedication we ever had in that building. And what struck me whenever I thought about those two pictures side by side is this is the part of the vision, the dream of God for our church is that we can walk alongside of young parents and families and see them become the lead disciplers, right, in their children's lives as we seek to reach another generation. So, so from, from birth, right, all the way to baptism and beyond that, hopefully, prayerfully, we get to partner with parents to see their children. So some of you have been serving in LifePoint Kids for five years, eight years, 10 years, you've all got a part, not just in her story, but in a number of the other stories for young people, not just who were baptized last week, but who continue to come to go public with their faith. And you just serve, use freely. When you serve in LifePoint Kids, um, we ask you two days a month, two Sundays a month for one hour. So we're asking for two hours out of your month to serve and to invest in the next generation to get to be part of the story that God is writing here in central Ohio. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine on the south side of town um, a week or so uh, ago, and he had stopped by the church facility on Saturday. He was the only one there. And while he was there, um, he heard a big knock on the door. So he went, answered the door, and it was a guy that he'd never met, early to mid-30s, who said he needed to see somebody, he needed some help. So he came in, sat down, and they talked. And what he found out is this uh, young man had a, had a meth addiction. Things were kind of coming unraveled in his life. So my friend was able to pray with him, share the gospel with him, give him resources, point him in directions that he could go to get help and hope. And as they're walking out of the church, my friend said to him, he said, uh, you know, man, um, why did you come here? He's like, I've been the pastor here for 16 years and we've never met before, like, why did you come here? And as they were walking down the hall, the guy stopped and he said, because when I was a kid, my parents brought me to this church. And he pointed to a room and he said, I went to Sunday school 
in that room right there. What an incredible testimony and vision to the place that God could create here. That when people, when the children of Lewis Center grow up and they find themselves in the middle of a crisis and they need help and hope, what they could say is, you know what? My mom and dad took me to Life Point. You know what? My mom and dad, they brought me to this to this place. And whenever they, they say, I don't know where else I could go, but I know I could come here because these people invested in me. And you can be part of the process of creating that kind of place. If you're a believer and you're not serving and you're struggling with spiritual apathy, I cannot think of a better way, a better way to help you grow than for you to serve. Inside the app notes, if you're following along in the app notes today, there's a link there to a form. Just click on that link, fill out that form. You're not signing up in blood forever to serve, like you're not. It just starts a conversation. If you don't have the app notes available, when you leave today, just stop by Guest Central. They'll help you fill out that form to begin a conversation about what it could look like to use your gifts in the context of serving the body. Next week at the 11 o'clock um, hour, we'll have a life teams orientation. And you can go there. We'll help you learn, understand what your spiritual gifts are and what all the opportunities would be for you to serve, uh, for you to serve here. Because we've been freed to do it. We've been freed up to serve, to walk and to live and to invest and to love and to give. Because there is coming a moment when the patient wrath of God, the patient justice of God. We'll set all things right. Here's how it's going to end. In Revelation chapter 16 and verse 17, he says this about the seventh bowl poured out, or the seventh angel, excuse me, poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple and from the throne saying, it is done. It's an incredible uh, verse when you think about it. Seventh bowl, the angel poured out, or this angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple and from the throne, saying, It is done. It is done. It is done. Where have you heard that before? What's the last thing Jesus said from the cross? The same slain lamb, Jesus from the cross said the exact same, the exact same, it is finished. Now it's not the exact same word. The word from the cross there is to telestai. It was the word that was stamped on a bill when it was eventually paid off, paid in full, right? When Jesus said, spiritually, this is done. The sacrifice from God to man for sin has been complete. This word is different. This word, it is done. This is the word genomai in the future, and it was used in a lot of different ways. It means completed, uh, a completed action, but one way that it was used was at the end of a wedding ceremony. Two people become one, married, it is done. Can I tell you, that's where you and I live. We live in between it is finished at Calvary in the past, and it is done. It is complete 
that will happen in the future when Jesus establishes his eternal kingdom. We live in the middle of those two. We live in the tension of the way things are and the way things ought to be. We live in the middle of this is what should happen and the way that someday this is the way things will happen. We live in the brokenness and we have the opportunity to be light in darkness, but there's coming a day when we will no longer live by faith. We will live by sight when God restores all things to be as they should be and will be eternally. We live right in the middle of those two right now. So if you're here today and you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, there's going to come a moment for you. And it's only going to be one of two ways. Either you're going to stand before God on your own deeds and you're going to roll the dice on the fact that you, you've somehow been good enough to earn God's love, which none of us can be. Or you're going to align yourself, not in your own performance, but with the performance of Christ in your place, with his perfection instead of your best effort. And I will just say to you as clearly as I can, today is an opportunity to take that step. God's kindness to you is no different than God showing up in front of Pharaoh and saying, hey, Pharaoh, here's, here's number one. Hey, Pharaoh, here's number two. It is no different than God saying to you, the reason that you're not here today by accident, pre-planned in the sovereign calendar of God, you are here today for this opportunity because there will come a day when you will be married to your deeds, your performance, or to Christ's performance forever. So this is your opportunity to come to him, not because you have to, not because you're afraid of judgment, not out of fear, but because of the wonder of the kindness and the grace and the goodness of God to offer you new life in him. Let's pray together. Lord, we sang earlier that the um, that the angels cry holy. Because God, you're different. Your love is different than, than our love. Your forgiveness is different than ours and your justice is right. It's different um, than ours. So I just pray today, God, for anyone who's here today, maybe God, who does not have a relationship with you, that in the clarity uh, of this moment, in the, um, in the thoughtfulness, in the spiritual work, this moment, that God, this morning, they would respond to all you've given and all you've done in faith to the one your word says who loved us and gave himself for us. As we just continue to stay in that attitude of prayer right now, if that is you, you're here today and you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, but you wanna take that step today I'd love to give you the opportunity to do that right now. I'll pray up here and you can pray with me right there um, in your seat. You don't have to say the words exactly like I say them. It's more about the intention of your heart to align your life with the sacrifice of Christ and to make him the leader of your life.
So if you want to take that step, just pray something like this. Dear Jesus, thank you for dying for me on the cross. Thank you for paying for my sins. And Jesus, today I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins and to make my heart clean and new. And in that, Jesus, I'm saying I want you to be the leader. I want you to be in charge. I will follow you. I trust you. Thank you for this great salvation gift. And again, I'll just ask that we continue to pray right now. Nobody's looking around. It's a real personal time between people and God. But the scriptures say when you take that step, that coming to faith in Christ is a personal decision, but it's not necessarily private. That you need to let other people know that. And so I'm just going to ask that you would allow me to be the first person that you tell that you've taken that step just by raising your hand right now. Nobody's going to ask you to stand up or say anything. Or, but would you do that if you took that step? Just raise your hand and say, yep, that was me today. Oh, thank you. Great. You put them up and take them right back down. Thanks. Thank you. Great. Great. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are in the room who are believers. As we join our hearts to sing songs like glory and honor and power, we join our hearts with heaven as you are worshiped. That God, we would be the kinds of people who serve and love and give and who walk in freedom, who are able, God, to avoid living in bitterness and anger. That we, God, would be an exodus people because of the freedom that you've offered to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.